Open your Bibles up to the first chapter of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 1. We return again to our studies in Ephesians, picking up the second of a multi-part message. Boy, is that a broken record, huh? In this first chapter, we're looking at verses 11 to 14, and there is just so much density in these Verses here in the first chapter of Ephesians, actually in the entire letter. This is, a, this is a short letter. It's only six chapters long, but whoa. This is a very theologically dense letter. And so just working our way through it is going to, we're going to be at it a while here. And uh, I'm not in a rush, and I trust that you're not either. And so we are back again for the second part of the message entitled The Seven Jewels of Our Inheritance. The Seven Jewels of Our Inheritance here in Ephesians in the first chapter looking at verses in particular 11 through 14. John says in 1 John 3, 1, See how great a love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. That is an amazing statement, an amazing reality, that we, those who are born of Adam, and that's all of us, Lost in our sin, without love or desire for God, only in love with ourselves, that God would do something most amazing, that he would transform us through the power of the gospel, that we could become children of God. And as children, we are entitled to an inheritance. We are entitled to an inheritance. Parents save up for their children's inheritance. The Proverbs says that the righteous man provides an inheritance to his children's children. And so here we are, children of the living God. And because we are children, God has provided the most incredible inheritance for us. And and that's really what Paul is talking about here in verses 11 to 14. He is talking about our inheritance that is available to us in Christ. And so as we're looking at these verses here, 11 through 14, we noted last time that we would think about this inheritance in terms of a collection of jewels, rubies, diamonds, you know, whatever things that I've never seen that are entirely valuable. Ladies, you could fill it in. Seven of them. Seven jewels. And we looked last time at the first three of them, and we're going to pick it up here and carry forward. But let's just do this. Let me read the text for you, because we're not going to be taking it in in the chronological order that is presented here. We're going to be moving around within it to lift out these seven jewels and examine them, because together they display the incredible beauty and wonder of our divine inheritance. Paul says, the end of verse 10, in him, that is in Christ, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose, to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will, to the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, Having also believed, you were sealed in him with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is given as a pledge of our inheritance with a view to the redemption of God's own possession, that is, 
to the praise of his glory. We said there are seven jewels here, and last time we looked at three of them. And so just as a reminder for you, and kind of put us in the right frame of mind here, we said the first jewel of our inheritance is that it is the shared right of the firstborn. The first jewel is the shared right of the firstborn. Notice where Paul says, in him we have obtained an inheritance. In him we have obtained an inheritance. That is, that in union with Christ, that which the Father predestined way back there in verse uh, 3, 4, 5, where he lays out for us that his predestining work, that he has placed us in union with Christ, that in union there with Christ, we now share in Christ's inheritance. Jesus is the firstborn of all creation, and as the, as the firstborn, he has the right of the firstborn, which Deuteronomy 21 spells out as the double portion, right? That he gets that double portion of the Father's estate. And so in union with him, we too receive Christ's inheritance. Christ's inheritance. The shared right of the firstborn. We looked, secondly, last week at our inheritance rests upon the Father's initiative. That was the second jewel, that, the, that our inheritance rests upon the Father's initiative. And you see it there in verse 11, at the beginning of the verse, having been predestined, having been predestined, we then share that right of the firstborn. And what we noted last time was that it is that it speaks of the Father's initiative. It is the Father's initiative. Salvation is of the Lord. It is his idea. It is his initiative. It is his first action to which we then respond in faith. So our inheritance rests upon the Father's initiative. Third jewel, our inheritance reflects the Father's meticulous planning and control. Again, verse 11, having been predestined according to his purpose who works all things after the counsel of his will. And we noted those four, ver- uh, four words there, purpose uh, in uh, all things and the counsel of his will. That is that, that Paul sort of building this up to, to speak about the Father planning this whole thing out. This is not haphazard. This is not random. This, this represents the, the mind of the Father. It is the counsel of his will. And just... Reflecting this morning on that, on that idea, the counsel of the Father's will. In other words, that he's not going outside of himself to discuss the matter with anyone. To hey, say, hey, you know, I got this idea. Let's, when do you bounce this around? I mean, that's us. We're always talking to other people. The Proverbs say, in fact, that in a multitude of counselors, we find what? Wisdom. Right? Because why? Well, because we're finite people. We're limited people. But the Father's not finite. The Father's not limited in any way. So he doesn't seek counsel outside of himself. And in fact, Paul says the very thing for us in Romans 11. Just go ahead and turn there. Romans 11, picking it up in verse 33, just to be reminded of the significance of this. Where Paul says in Romans chapter 11, beginning in verse 33, that runs to the end of the chapter. And there, of course, he has now summarized and finished his great exposition of what he calls his gospel, that is the saving gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And as he draws it all to a a climax and a conclusion, he he ends with this, this doxology where he says, oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God, 
How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. In other words, that we can, we can know much, but, but there are limits to what we can know about the Father's saving grace. And the areas of election and predestination, of course, are some of those places where we run into a, into a wall beyond our understanding and, and ability to search it out. Verse 34, For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who became his counselor? In other words, who did God go to to check out his plan? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? In other words, is God the debtor of anyone? Answer, no. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Our inheritance, back to Ephesians 1, our inheritance in union with Christ, that is the shared right of the firstborn, reflects the Father's meticulous planning and control. That takes us to the fourth jewel this morning. The fourth jewel this morning where we'll dig into the text again. The fourth jewel, our inheritance is claimed by believing the gospel. Our inheritance is claimed by believing the gospel. Notice where Paul says, You also, down there in verse 13, You also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and then, uh, then he says, Having believed also. Having believed also. These great doctrines of election and predestination are huge. They are very, very important. They are very important for for many reasons, but not the least of which is is that they provide a source of comfort and hope to the Christian. They provide a source of comfort and hope. For if, if our salvation depended upon our hold on God, there is not a one of us here this morning that could stand. But our redemption depends upon God's hold on us. And so these great doctrines of election and predestination, rightly understood, provide an incredible source of comfort and hope, particularly in the midst of trials. But, but, these doctrines are never to be a substitute for the necessity of hearing and believing the gospel. We are not saved by election. We are not saved by predestination. We are saved when we place believing faith in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says in Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 that faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Okay, so we never want to confuse in our mind these great doctrines of election and predestination with the necessity of believing, the necessity of saving faith. Now, the Jewish people of the first century, they were confused. They had come to believe that that their ultimate... uh, connection to God, their ultimate source of security lay in their physical descent from Abraham. 
They look to the work of God in Abraham and their relationship through bloodline to Abraham as the, as the final source of their hope, of their salvation. They thought it was sufficient to guarantee their inheritance. And yet Jesus came along and repeatedly, repeatedly stressed to them that it was faith in him that demonstrated that one was truly a child of God. And that message uh, was met with incredible resistance and hostility, as you well know. I'm reminded in uh, Matthew in the 8th chapter and the 10th verse. In fact, go ahead, flip over there to Matthew chapter 8 and verse 10. The illustration of this point with the centurion. The centurion who comes to Jesus, who has a, has a servant who is paralyzed. He's laying at home and he's paralyzed. And, and he comes to Jesus, right? And, and he says to Jesus, just say a word and my, my servant will be healed. The 8th chapter of Matthew. And then uh, down in verse 9, he, he goes on to say, For I am a man under authority with soldiers unto me, and I say to this one, Go, and he goes, and another come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. In other words, you don't even have to come. All you have to do, you're, you have authority. All you have to do is say it, and it'll happen. Verse 10, Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Not with anyone in Israel. This Roman centurion, this Gentile, understood. He understood. He got it. And he placed his saving faith in the Messiah. In John's Gospel, John 8 and verse 47, Jesus says to the Jews of his day, He who is of God hears the words of God. For this reason you do not hear them, because you are not of God. Again, they were claiming Abraham as their father, and he said to them that, that, that you, you do not believe me because you cannot hear the word. You don't hear the word. That is, that is you, yeah, you, the, the, um, you know, the sound waves hit your eardrums, but you don't hear with a believing heart because you're not of God. If we were to put it together, beloved, we'd say it this way. We prove our claim to the inheritance through our belief. How do you... How do you Prove that you, when in the reading of the will, as it were, at the end of time, how do, you, how do you prove that you are in the family, that the inheritance is yours? The evidence of it is our believing faith. It is our believing faith. This is huge, by the way, moms and dads, with your children that you're raising here in Christian homes and in the Christian church. So important for you to, to recognize and to stress with them that it, the fact they go to church and have since the time they were you know, brought into the world, basically, and they've gone through the Awana ministry and they've memorized Bible verses and they've served in various ministries and, and we've done family devotions and they have their own Bible with their name written on it and they read their Bible. and I mean, on and on and all of these things, none of which, none of which, demonstrate them to be truly children of God. None of them guarantee them the inheritance 
So important for you to stress to them and work with them to understand that it is by faith in Christ that we are saved. And our heritage, great as it is, and blessing and gift as it is, and it truly is, but just like the Jews of Jesus' day, it will do us no good. And in fact, be a hindrance if we somehow are relying upon that or trusting in that. We claim our inheritance through our belief. Now the word here, gospel, the word gospel here means good news, right? After listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. The word gospel means good news. And, and notice how Paul describes this uh, gospel here in verse 13. He uses a couple of expressions. He calls it the message of truth. He calls it the message of truth, and he calls it the gospel of your salvation. The message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. This is what we must believe, this message of truth. Now, the idea of truth, biblically speaking, is it carries the basic idea of that which is opposite of a lie. Truth is that which is opposite of a lie. We could also say that truth is reality, or truth is that which is actual as opposed to that which is false. Furthermore, in this context here, we could, we could speak of it as reliability. Truth is the idea of reliability as opposed to the falsehoods of the unreliable nature of all other competing religious systems. The message of truth. We must believe the message of truth. And this is so important for us to emphasize. So important, particularly in our day and age. Christianity is true. It is true. Christianity is actual. Christianity is reliable because Christianity is grounded in a historical reality. The gospel is a statement of historical reality that has eternal implications. But we must never lose sight. It is, it is not merely some religious expression, some, some ideas of, of uh, great and wise men. It is fundamentally at its core a statement of a historical reality. It is truth. It is truth. And what is that truth? That truth, when it's, when it's boiled down to its essence, is, is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. That is a truth claim. That, by the way, is why the resurrection is always under such attack. It is always under such attack because it is the resurrection that, it, that is the validating event of all the preceding members of that chain. Think with me to uh, 1 Corinthians 15 and notice how Paul handles this very idea about truth. The message of truth. 1 Corinthians and 15. We get a little insight into, into the way the Apostle Paul preached the gospel. All right, if our inheritance is claimed by believing the gospel, then we, we need to have a good idea of what the gospel is and how to go about presenting it to people. And so there in 1 Corinthians 15 and picking up in verse 3, 
Paul says, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, right? So we have the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. These are These are truth claims. These are statements of historical reality. Paul goes on and he says, And he appeared to Cephas and then to the twelve. And after that he appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but, but some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James and then to all the apostles. And last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. These are truth claims. Truth claims. Back to Ephesians 1. The message of truth, Paul calls it, and then he also calls it the gospel of your salvation. You see it there in verse 13. In him you also, after listening to the message of truth, the gospel of your salvation. Salvation. What is salvation? At its most fundamental level, it means to be delivered. It means to be rescued. It means to be saved from something. And here, it is a a reference to our deliverance, our rescue, our being saved from spiritual death and bondage to sin. Paul will develop that even more in the next chapter. Now, the expression here, it's interesting to me at least, where it says, the gospel of your salvation... The the grammatical structure here basically means that the gospel which has for its content salvation. The good news which has for its content deliverance. The good news which, which has for its content rescue. Salvation. In other words, it is the it is the good news about deliverance from sin. It is the good news about how one is rescued from sin and death. The gospel of your salvation, that is what we must believe. We must believe the truth claim, which is good news, that there in Christ, right? According to Acts chapter 4 and verse 12, there is salvation in no other name but Christ alone. There in the belief in this truth claim, we find our deliverance. We must believe, we must have faith. It's absolutely critical to claiming the inheritance, but it it cannot be a generic faith. It cannot be any old faith. It has to be faith in the specific truth of God's saving work in Christ. A specific set of historical realities. This is the basis of the gospel. This is the gospel. This is all the, still the basis of our Christian theology. Beloved, the gospel means good news, right? But it's only good if it's true. If it's not true, it's not good news. The news is only good if it is true. Because it's only if it is true that it does its work of saving. This is why, by the way, that 
in both the New Testament and throughout church history, there's that emphasis on sound doctrine, right? Sound doctrine. You read the pastoral epistles, First and Second Timothy and Titus, and you just see the repeated expression, sound doctrine, or said another way, orthodoxy, orthodoxy. In fact, in Titus chapter 1, verse 9, when talking about the qualifications of an elder, an elder must, verse 7, down to verse 9, must hold fast the faithful word which is in accordance with the teaching so that he will be able both to exhort in sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. How is a man qualified to stand before the people of God as a, as a shepherd leader, as an elder? He must be able to teach sound doctrine. He must understand the truth of the gospel and be able to make it known. Not a novice. Now this reality that Christianity is inexorably rooted in truth claims, I think is, is often or underemphasized in modern church preaching. That is that there is a sort of a developed distaste in many churches and from many pulpits for, for teaching sound doctrine, for doctrinal preaching. Oh, there's probably all kinds of reasons for that. The one that's often said is, well, this is too complicated. It's too hard. I have to think too much. Well, nobody says that, but, you know, that's sort of implied. It's just, it's just hard stuff, and, you know, and, and I, I need something to help me for the rest of the week. And, and so you need, to, you need to preach to me from the Scriptures in a way that, that helps me. Beloved, listen. <laughs> what you need is truth. Truth is what helps you. Because truth is what equals reality, and reality is the only thing that can help you. You can, you can, you can hear a message that really you know, lifts you up and, you know, and you go forth and you're thinking, yeah, that's good, I'm ready for Monday. And if it's not grounded deeply in truth, it's like trying to live off of a Hershey bar. feels really good going down, but it drops you like a cheap date after about a half an hour, right? Yeah. So doctrinal preaching. We need doctrinal preaching from our pulpits. Now, admittedly, sometimes doctrinal preaching can get too narrow, uh, even harsh in its tone at times, and, uh, and God forbid such things. But I honestly don't think that's the biggest problem. Not with the church at large. I think the biggest problem with the church at large lies in the spirit of the age, this notion of tolerance, this, this idea that, you know, Let's just, um, let's just get along. Can't we just get along? We'll be all just be friends. And, and stop making these sharp distinctions. And this lack of, of doctrinal clarity, doctrinal precision, has led to, to fuzzy thinking. Fuzzy thinking. They say a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. So, so preaching that is not clear, preaching that is not, not rooted solidly in, in, the, in the truth claims of the Christian religion 
has led to a, to a situation in evangelicalism at large where we're not even sure who's a believer and who's not anymore. For vast swaths of the, of the evangelical church, people are unable to even draw distinctions anymore. They're not even able to say precisely who is and who is not a follower of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've sort of boiled it all down to, I love Jesus, yes I do, I love Jesus, how about you? Right? And that's the extent of our doctrinal statement. It's not good. It's not good at all because when the times grow hard, and they will, when the difficult times come, I'm, I'm afraid we're going to find many, many falling away. Many falling away. Well, that jewel is our inheritance is claimed by believing the gospel fifth. Fifth jewel. I think we'll end it here this morning. Fifth jewel. Our inheritance places us in a multi-ethnic family. The fifth jewel of our inheritance is it places us in a multi-ethnic family. Notice where um, Paul says here in in, uh, verse 11, he says, uh, In him also we... I missed it. Verse 12. He says, To the end that we who were the first to hope in Christ would be to the praise of his glory. Verse 12. We who were the first to hope in Christ. And then he goes on and he says in verse 13, You also, you also were sealed in him. And then down to verse 14, he says, Who is given as a pledge of our inheritance. You You see the pronouns there? Or he says, he says, we, and then he says, you, and then he says, our. Now, this admittedly is not a universally accepted point here, but I'm persuaded, and I'm not entirely out on a limb all by myself on this. I'm persuaded that Paul is making an important distinction here between the Jewish believers and the Gentile believers. In other words, there in verses 11 and 12, where he uses the pronoun we, where he says, in him also we have obtained an inheritance, and then, then down there in, um, in verse 12, he says, we who were the first to hope in Christ. I think he's referring to himself and, and his fellow Jewish believers. And then he goes on there in verse 13, and he says, And you also, the reference to the Gentile believers, those that primarily made up the church at Ephesus, right? Ephesus is located in modern Turkey. It was Gentile land. And then he, then he goes on to, to pull it together, saying that all groups share equally, where he says in verse 14, it was given as a pledge of our inheritance. So he's making this distinction. He's saying, we, that is the Jewish believers, hoped in Christ first. And then, and then you also, after hearing the gospel, you believed. And then we together share in this inheritance. 
Now, assuming that interpretation of those pronouns is correct, then, then there is an incredibly profound theological statement being made here. Because what he is, what he is stating is he, is he is talking about Jew and Gentile, the greatest division of the ancient world being brought together into what he would call one new man in Christ. And in fact, what he would be doing here is, is sort of anticipating what he will make explicit in the next chapter. So, so flipping it over there to chapter 2. Where Paul says, therefore remember that formerly you, verse 11 there, remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh. Down to verse 13, but now in Christ Jesus, you who were formerly far off have been brought near, right? And then he goes on to say about how he has made the the two one, verse 16, he has reconciled them both in one body to God. We become the one new man. The one new man. Now this interpretation, this this notion here that that Paul is is speaking about the the ancient divisions of antiquity between Jew and Gentile doesn't rely on just the use of the pronouns. It, I believe, is, is, is taught when he speaks here at the end of verse 13 about the Holy Spirit of promise. You see it down there in the end of verse 13? The Holy Spirit of promise. Said another way, the promised Holy Spirit. The promised Holy Spirit. You were sealed, he says at the end of verse 13, you Gentiles were sealed in Christ with the promised Holy Spirit. Now, what does that mean, the promised Holy Spirit? Well, the, 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 the idea that the Spirit was promised is, is a notion that is deeply wed into the prophets of the Old Testament in their reference to the coming new covenant. And in fact, the, the coming of the Spirit is, is the distinguishing mark of that new covenant. How do we know when the new covenant arrives? We know the new covenant arrives when the Spirit comes. You can probably see it most clearly, and I'll go ahead and take you back there to Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, we'll pick it up in verse 24. This, by the way, is, is um, what's running in the background of, of Jesus' confrontation with uh, or meeting with Nicodemus in John 3. All right, where he says to Nicodemus, uh, you know, and you're the teacher of, of Israel, and you don't understand this? That you, you know, you must be born from above? All right? And it, by, by water and the Spirit? How can you be the teacher of Israel and not understand your own prophets who have promised this? Look at it in verse 24. For I will take you from the nations and gather you into from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will put a new heart, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. And I'll remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is the promise of the new covenant. It is the promise of the spirit to come. 
that God will now dwell internally through his spirit. The law no longer on tablets of stone, it'll now reside internally in the new heart. Go with me to Luke 24. verse 49, Luke 24 and 49, this is following the resurrection of Christ, right? And for 40 days, he is making appearances to his disciples and he is teaching them all that was written about him in the scriptures. He says, verse 48, you are witnesses of these things. Then pick up verse 49. And behold, I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. I am sending forth the promise of my Father upon you. But you are to stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. I am sending forth the promise of my Father. What is the promise of his Father? It is the Spirit it is the Spirit promised long before in the prophets. How can we be so sure of this? We'll go to Acts chapter 1. That's how you can know. Acts chapter 1 and verse 4. He has taught them now, it says, for, for 40 days concerning the kingdom of God. And then verse 4, gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised. To wait for what the Father had promised. Well, what had the Father promised? He had promised the coming of the Spirit. So when does the Spirit come? Well, chapter 2. Chapter 2 of Acts and, and verse 33. Where Peter says, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, speaking of Christ, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. Pick it up in verse 38. I mean, they're, they're, they're cut to the quick, it says, in verse 37. And what do we do, right? Peter said that in verse 38, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of the Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. It is the promised spirit, and it is for Israel and for all who will believe, right? The Father will call to himself. This point is so significant, and if you turn over to chapter 10, chapter 10 of Acts and there were, were narrated the account of Cornelius' vision, you're right? You remember that? Cornelius, the, uh, the Roman centurion there. And uh, he's praying and so forth, and the Spirit says to him, you know, call for Peter, he's in Joppa and so forth. And in the meantime, there's, Peter sees a vision of the sheet filled with the animals and, you know, kill and eat. And, oh, I'd never do that, they're not clean, don't call unclean what God has made. You know, all of that's right. So Peter goes, and he, and he, and he basically arrives and in verse 34, and, and, uh, and, he, and he basically says, okay, I'm here, now I'm not really sure. And so he said, well, just talk to us. And so he just opens his mouth and he begins to speak to them about the fulfillment of Christ. 
And what I want you to see is in verse 44, while Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the messages, to the message. All the circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. This is so significant that in the next chapter, notice two chapters of the, of, of, uh, the account of Acts is given to this one event. We're narrated in chapter 10, and then it's narrated again in chapter 11. Because there, back in Jerusalem, the, the Jewish believers are challenging Peter, like, what are you doing? Going to Gentiles? And he says to them, listen, verse 15. He began to, as I began to speak to them, the Holy Spirit fell upon them, just as he did upon us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he used to say, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Therefore, if God gave to them the same gift he gave to us also after believing in Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? This is a massive point. This is, a, this is a turning point in, in all of human history because the ancient divide has now been bridged. So go back to Ephesians 1. So there in verse 13, when Paul talks about the Gentiles, having believed you were sealed, the end of verse 13, in him with the promised spirit, What he is saying is is that you, having believed, have come into Israel's new covenant. In other words, Jew and Gentile, together, one body, equal footing, equal access to the Father. Chapter 2, verse 8, For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. And then down to verse 18, for through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. Beloved, the implications of this are absolutely staggering. Absolutely staggering. For the vast majority of us, we would not be here this morning if it wasn't for this truth. Gentiles were always welcome through Israel. You could could become a a follower of Yahweh, the the God of Israel. You You could come in as a proselyte, but you could never come close. You you could only get so close. There were barriers, there were things to keep you away, and not the least of which is you're a Gentile. So you can have the crumbs that fall off the table, so to speak. But now, but now, having believed the message of truth, we get to come in, equal partners, into a shared sonship. Can you you imagine this? We now become... Children of God, joint heirs with Christ, recipients of the double portion. And the fact that the blood of Abraham doesn't run in my veins is no hindrance at all. Throughout the world, 
and throughout all time, ethnic differences have lain at the root of human hostility. Tribalism. And the resultant xenophobia, right? The fear of the stranger. It makes us proud. It makes us suspicious. It makes us inhospitable. It makes us hard-hearted. And it even makes us violent at times. If you look around the world and you, and you look at the violence going on in the world, nine times out of ten it is a tribal-based violence. I'd even suggest that today, in our own culture, there is a growing tribalism. The left and the right. And they won't even talk to each other. They are suspicious. There is animosity. There is hatred. And if Christ doesn't intervene, I'm afraid there will be violence. This is no small matter because the church of Jesus Christ is to stand out as as this this light on a hill, this beacon for a world that is at each other's throats. The church of Jesus Christ is made up of men and women drawn from every tribe, tongue, people, and Tribe, you know, nation, not political states, but nations. The church is the living, breathing, loving, hospitable community of people who have little natural reason to be together. I mean, we can look around the room this morning. There, there is little natural reason for you to be here. And in fact, there is much that could easily divide you from one another and historically always has. And yet here we are. Here we are with with this brilliant display of the dazzling love of Christ. I think that's Paul's point. Where Jesus says in John 13, 35, By this all men will know that you are my disciples. If you have what? Love for one another. Love for one another. Beloved, we share equally in the inheritance of Christ. That means there's no second class citizens. That means no one has a leg up, no one gets a gets an extra you know, advantage in all of this. It doesn't matter what your ethnicity is. And I would go beyond that to say it doesn't, it doesn't matter what your, what your background is. At the foot of the cross, the ground is level. And we are all there in the same place, dependent upon Christ. Sharing in his inheritance. And that, my friend, is a dazzling jewel that the world needs to see a whole lot more of. Let's pray.
Our Father, the gospel of Jesus Christ is the most amazing reality. And it cuts across everything that this world stands for. That we who have nothing have received everything. That we who are far off have been brought near in Christ. That we who are the least, the despised, the lowly, are now joint heirs with the king of the universe. That we who were once in bondage to sin and death have now shared in Christ's victory. Our Father, may that reality sink deep into our hearts. May this truth be the anchor of our soul in this week to come. Father, we don't know what's in store for us this week. We don't know what trials or troubles may come our way. But this we know for sure. Because you set your love upon us. Before the world even began. That you meticulously and carefully planned. That we would share an inheritance with your son, Christ. And in the right moment in space and time, your spirit worked in our hearts so that the scales were removed and the ears were unstopped and we saw the wonder and glory and beauty of Christ and our hearts were flooded with love for him and we willingly, indeed eagerly, fled to that cross and we cling to Christ now. Father, you have done it in a way that confounds human wisdom. Oh, let us revel in that truth. And let us recognize that you have a hold on us that time or circumstance can never break. And we will offer you praise in Jesus' name. Amen.